the Syrophoenician woman. How many Syrophoenician women are in the house this morning? Okay, we have a Raw Connect event for you on Saturday at 9 a.m. For literal women, not Syrophoenician women. You can be other than Syrophoenician, but you do need to be a woman. Uh, so please see Crystal. Crystal, would you stand up so everybody can see you? Talk to her if you're looking for an address or interest. Yes, you can put your hands together for Crystal. She's doing a wonderful job, as so many of you know. This gospel story is a handful, and my, my, my desire was to really get to the man who is deaf and mute, because I've heard through podcasts a wonderful sermon preached on the Syrophoenician woman right here in this church. So I thought, I'm going to go for the guy who's deaf and mute. And as I sat with the Syrophoenician woman, man, I could not get away from what was happening in the story. And so uh, we're going to dive in this morning with a sermon that I've entitled Crumbs and Possibilities. Crumbs and Possibilities. Now, whenever we're reading the Gospels in particular, it's really, really helpful to see whatever particular passage or text that we're in as connected to a larger whole. So we have to understand Jesus' movements matter, what's been happening before this matters, because it's all written down intentionally to prove points, to make points beyond what's right there in front of us in the text. And if we go back and we look at what's been happening in Mark chapter 7, we'll notice that the chapter begins with a pretty nasty confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it has to do with eating. It has to do with food. And it has to do with cleanness and uncleanness. And Jesus begins to revolutionize our ideas about what defiles us, what contaminates us, the source of sin, the source of corruption. And he famously says that it's not what comes out, I'm sorry, not what goes into the mouth of a man that defiles him, but what comes out that defiles him. And out of the heart come all of these wicked things. And he says, uh, quoting Isaiah, I believe here in the sixth verse, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So just to get a little bit of a sense, isn't it interesting that at the beginning of Mark 7, he talks about people who can use their lips but in the end of Mark 7, he's healing a man who can't speak. Okay? So that's a great example of how the gospel writers would lay out a text. It's very intentional that Mark, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pointing out this incredible prophetic confrontation that's taking place at the beginning of the chapter where he's saying, you guys talk nonstop, but it's just lip service because your heart's not in it. And then by the end of the chapter, people are bringing him someone who most of us think is probably not even Jewish, and he can't speak. And in the end, he's using his lips to proclaim the greatness of Jesus. The Pharisees are using their lips to contend over these small trivialities about the disciples washing, not washing, are they contaminated, and so on and so forth. So in this controversy, Jesus goes and heads out to what would be current-day Lebanon, the area of Tyre. And we have to remember here is that Jesus is not an itinerant medical worker. 
Jesus is not roaming about the countryside to be a help to Israel. He's not there to, to, to make sure that everybody has their physicals and their checkups and that everything is fixed. And that's not why Jesus has come. Jesus makes it very clear that he came with an express purpose. He's inaugurating the kingdom of God, and he is on a mission to Calvary. That is his express purpose. Now, along the way, we're grateful for the fact that there are these amazing encounters and healings and so on and so forth. But what Jesus is realizing here is after things have flared up with the Pharisees in the beginning of the seventh chapter, it would be really wise for him to withdraw, to let things settle down so that he doesn't draw too much attention to himself. Does anybody remember Jesus saying things like, my time has not yet come? Right? So this is what he's getting at here. He's like, we don't, if I push on this a little bit too hard, it's going to raise too much attention and they're going to follow through on this too quickly and I can't have that happen. So I want us to have in the back of our mind that what's really animating Jesus here is this greater sense of mission to inaugurate God's kingdom and specifically to represent humanity in its fullest depravity on Calvary. That's what he's doing. So he's not a medical missionary. The setting matters here. He goes to a Gentile location because he's thinking to himself, well, there's no Pharisees here. Nobody's going to stop me and, you know, kind of spring on me with a trick question to try to get me to say something uh, controversial. Tyre, though, again, when we read these texts, I think it's helpful to understand the setting matters. He goes to Tyre. Now, there are a couple of interesting facts about Tyre. First of all, Tyre had been an ally and supporter of Jerusalem, historically. But when Jerusalem was under siege in 587, Tyre abandoned Jerusalem. Jesus goes to the place of the backstabbers and the betrayers. He goes to the place that would get every Jewish person upset. Because you couldn't help but wonder if, if Tyre had just been a good friend, maybe we wouldn't have been overthrown. The second thing about Tyre that's very interesting and leads us into our story quite well is the fact that this is the home city. Sidon is the home city of somebody you might know. Her name is Jezebel. She's kind of half of the most evil power couple in the history of the world. I don't know if you've heard of this name, Jezebel. This is Jesus is going to the place of betrayers and pure evil. This is the place of death and corruption and murder and idolatry and wickedness. This is where he's going. And this woman, this Syrophoenician woman, lives in this space. In Jesus, she encounters someone who deals with her humanity, engages her humanness. What I think is interesting is that she does not let, and this is, I think, important for all of us, she doesn't let stereotypes, collective presumed guilt, keep her from pressing into Jesus. Notice this, Jesus would have been obviously Jewish, right? Jesus would be obviously Jewish in his appearance and in his garb and in his, the way that he would have carried himself. And this woman, in Matthew's telling of this story, she comes at Jesus like a full-blooded, hot-breathing Pentecostal. She is shouting at Jesus. Hey! 
I don't know if she put the little thing on the end of it, but she did some, she's shouting at Jesus to the point that the disciples are really irritated at her in Matthew's telling of the story. Interestingly, Jesus never gets bothered by shouting. Just, you can put that note in there. It doesn't really bother him. He's okay with the shouting. And everybody said, <sighs> but she, I love this about her. She knows how to adapt. She knows how to adapt because she changes from shouting to bowing. In the story where Mark picks it up, we find her not shouting, not being uh, intense and all of this. We find her at the end of this story, as Matthew tells it, on her knees, reverently before Jesus. Why? Because her daughter's demon-possessed. Her daughter's possessed by an unclean spirit. And so she makes her way to this Jewish rabbi, this Jewish teacher. She should not be doing this, but she's going to do it anyway because she loves her daughter and she's thinking there's a chance. She's an amazing woman because, listen to me, she's willing to leave her home in order to help her home. Please notice this. They don't have cell phones. They can't text if there's a problem. She's got to leave this girl who's tortured and living under the oppression of the demonic. She's got to walk away from that situation in order to connect with Jesus. And I think there's something there for all of us this morning because it speaks to her profound humility. I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, you have a little bit of a fixer in you. Anybody here have a little bit of a pinch of fixer in you? Anybody operate like me? Nobody's cooperative. I've got one saved person in the back, and the rest of you are not Christians. Okay, so I got a couple hands. Thank you. Right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Um, when you've got a little bit of fixer in you, you, have the, you operate under the delusion that if you're not there, it's all going to fall apart. Hello? If it's this bad with me here, if I get pulled out of this equation, it's all going to fall apart. Hello? Have you ever noticed that maybe there's a pinch of pride in there with the fixer? There's a pinch of that false delusion of competency, right? That sense that well, because I'm here, I'm keeping it together. I love the fact that she's willing to leave the daughter. I can't get some of you to leave a kid if they got a fever. She's got a demon. Maybe some of your kids do have a demon. I don't know. I don't work in kids' ministry for that reason. I'd be exercising all of them. We have the oil out. It's developmental. It's a demon. Anyway. Janice is going to pull me in the office tomorrow. Don't worry. There's a certain beauty in the fact that she's willing to leave her family to help her family. There's an appropriate, holy, faithful amount of space that we as parents, I know we're not in our series that we just finished, but I'm, I just feel this right now to say this. There's an appropriate, healthy amount of space that we as parents need to have from our children if our children are gonna get the touch from Jesus that they need. And we have to let, and I say this as a parent of three, we have to let our children be in what they're in. 
so Jesus can do what only Jesus can do. Because I think until we're willing to leave the house, leave that demon-possessed girl in the house and go find Jesus, it's not going to change. Got to leave that house. And it's the humility of saying, I can't fix this. I can't fix this. I want to point out the fact that this woman is the first woman in Mark's gospel to call Jesus Lord. She's the first person. Mark's gospel is the first gospel, most scholars would contend. The first gospel, the first person to call Jesus Lord is the Syrophoenician woman. And I'd also suggest that she's the first person in Mark's gospel to rightly understand a parable. And this is where the text gets hairy for so many of us, right? Because we don't usually think in parables and because we don't speak Greek, this text is used in ways that I don't know are always helpful. Let's go back and look at this Mark 7 text that we heard read this morning. Verse 27, Jesus says to this woman, let the children be fed first. Remember, this is a passage that has to do with food at the beginning, right? She asked for deliverance, and he's talking about food. He's my kind of savior. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And everybody is just taken aback at this misogynistic Jesus. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. If we're reading this as Jesus trying to assault her Gentileness, I think we miss a possibility in that that one verse, that 27th verse is Jesus telling a parable. And the 28th verse is this woman adding to the parable. It's her jumping in and saying, I get where you're going with this. And part of it is because he doesn't use the Greek word for dog. It's translated dog, and that's not necessarily an error. And if there's a Greek scholar in the room, which there's a chance at sanctuary, it could be a Greek scholar in the room. I've done a lot of reading this week, and I've, okay. There are two words that are in Greek for dog. And one of them has to do with street dogs, scavenging dogs, the kind of dog that Paul would reference in Philippians 3, where he's got an edge to it. He says, beware of the dogs. Jesus is not using that word. Jesus is using the word for puppy. He's using the word for a house pet. He's using a word, are there any of the saved people in the house who love dogs and have realized cats are of the dark side? (laughs) Praise the Lord, anybody. Can I get a witness? When you cast a demon out, I can tell you where they go. And if you own a cat, it's your house. Okay? He's using the language of affection and endearment. He's using cuddly language. He's not using finger-pointing, 
nasty, condemning. This is why we think it might be a parable, because he's talking about puppies and pets that would be in your house, up under your feet, while you're eating dinner. What's beautiful here is that she's able to jump into this. In the same way that she's able to adapt her shout to a bow, she's able to change her request, her plain request, help my daughter. And Jesus starts talking about puppies and food falling and what's happening. She's like, okay, let's work with this. I can work with the puppies in the house at the table. But I've had a pet in the house and I know Kids are messy. I've been to dinner with Nate and Regina. And Nate has this thing. He said, Mark, if you're going to come out to eat with our family, you have to know Lily is going to feed the floor. He's right. Much more was under the chair than in her mouth. And you wish you had a dog there. She jumps into this and she's able to adapt and she shows such beautiful wisdom and such incredible humility because she's not trying to be something she's not. Yes, there is the hint and there's the word play and there's sort of the double meaning of Gentiles or dogs, but he's using the word puppy, so what does it mean? It means all of those things and she's okay with that. There's something about Jesus that should make us comfortable in our own skin. There's the thing about who you are that you cannot change. If you're Gentile by birth, as the text tells us, she can't change that. She's like, okay, here's what I know about Jesus. Even if I am a puppy, you can work with this, can't you? That was a good chance for you to say amen right now. Because there's a lot of us that don't necessarily meet the qualifications for a blessing. But just knowing that Jesus is the kind of God who can work with that should give us a little joy in our hearts this morning. Just knowing that we might have done everything we could in our power to disqualify ourselves. But Jesus can still work with that should bring us a smile. Should bring us some sort of amen up out of our gut. Thank you God that you can work with that. See, and there's something about this, too, where she understands she doesn't need the loaf of bread. The crumbs are going to be enough. See, her contentment with crumbs reveals a profound spiritual insight. She only needs crumb-sized faith. She only needs a crumb-sized dispensation of God's power to see deliverance. She doesn't need big fireworks kind of stuff going on she's fine being a puppy she's fine being under the table because she has check this out enough faith in the goodness of jesus to know if i'm a puppy and i just get a crumb it's still going to get done you see she's revealing something about her perspective of jesus the way that she responds here she's not trying to be something she's not because she's confident jesus can work with who she is Here's the reality. Gentiles, you can put whatever word you want on us, assuming that most of us are not children of Abraham by birth. If you are, we're all jealous. Good for you. Don't tell us. We don't want to be covetous of your DNA or something here. Here's the reality. Whether Jesus is calling you a house pet or Paul is calling you, look at, look at 
Turn with me over to Romans chapter 11. There's all sorts of colorful metaphorical language for us outsiders. Romans chapter 11, Paul's towards the end of a discourse on the back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles. And in verse 17, Romans 11, Paul says, if some of the branches are broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. I'm not going to keep going on there, but notice what Paul's, uh, Paul's, he's taking terminology here to make it clear that you're an outsider. You're a wild olive shoot. It's Jesus looking at this woman and saying, you're a puppy. And what we have to do is understand that these things are true of us, but they don't disqualify us. They're true of us, but they don't limit Jesus. They're true of us. And friends, listen to me. Our limitations are a setup for God to show his greatness. The extent to which we don't naturally qualify is the extent to which God's grace can be put on display. Great humility and great faith go together. Great humility and great faith go together. This woman never pushes back on being called a dog. Never pushes back. Because that's not the point. Never gets upset. Doesn't walk away because Jesus didn't respond to her shouting. She just says, well, let me try another way. Let me try another way. Friends, nothing will test our humility, our spiritual maturity, like disrespect. Nothing will test it like a lack of cooperation when you need help. In this brief exchange between Jesus and this woman, her humility is on display alongside her faith the whole time because she never, ever, loses step. She never gets uh, dissuaded in any way. She stays right there with Jesus the whole time. And what she's doing is she's proving that she is the kind of person that when the power of God is displayed in her life, she's going to be able to handle it. She's showing the world that when God shows up in this situation, I'm going to be faithful. When God shows up and does what only he can do, I'm going to be able to walk it out. She's showing it in the process before it ever happens. How many of us, when Jesus ignored us, would have walked away in anger? That's not in Mark's text. In Matthew's text, it's much worse. Matthew chapter 15, it's much worse. How many of us, Jesus, if we claim Jesus knows everything, how many times do the gospel gospel writers tell us, oh, he knew what was in your heart. He knew what they were thinking. You're out there shouting in the street, help me, help me, help me, and he's not even looking at you. Nice Jesus. Great Savior. Yeah, I'll worship you. Sure. Who do I make the check out to, right? Your ministry. I love that. How about this? When you finally say, okay, you know what? Maybe he's busy. Let me go. And you come at Jesus in a reverent, bowing way, and you're at the feet of Jesus. And you come with this genuine need. And he says, I'm not here to work with Gentiles. (laughs) Okay. Awkward. 
Anybody besides me? This is awkward. She's not shaken. She stays right in there with him. If I'm not mistaken, and I didn't look this up, I think this is the only co-written parable in all the Gospels. She's riffing off of Jesus' work. The disciples were always scratching their heads saying, what, what was he saying? What did that mean? She's like, I got this. Okay, so let's just say I am a little puppy here. I can probably get some crumbs, right? And notice what Jesus says. This is an incredible statement. Verse 29 of Mark 7, he says what? For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. For this statement. Absolutely incredible, inspiring, challenging. And it begs the question, what's up with Jesus in all of this? Why doesn't Jesus just do this from the beginning? If he had the power and the ability, why doesn't Jesus just always say yes? I mean, is it a good thing that this woman gets delivered, this woman's daughter gets, of course it's good that her daughter gets delivered. Why does Jesus not do this? And you could argue here that maybe Jesus needed his mind changed. That creates all sorts of problems for us. All sorts of theological problems for us. It may not even be the most helpful way to read the text. Some might suggest that perhaps Jesus is showing us how to be human. Maybe that's a little more helpful. And that in his full humanity, Jesus shows us the humility that is required for our flourishing. Because our humanity is going to limit us in ways that always require us to adapt. We're, unlike Jesus, we're going to be lacking information, and people are going to bring new information to light. And I know none of you struggle with stubbornness, but for, if you have friends who are stubborn, this could be a helpful story. You know, look at Jesus. He adapted. He changed. But here's the issue. And I think this is the most important thing we want to remember about this. God is obligated to no one. God is obligated to no one. Not a Pharisee, not a Syrophoenician, not a Tolson, not a New Yorker, not a Baptist, not a Pentecostal, not a conversion or a Catholic. He's obligated to no one and he does what he will. Period. Think about the unevenness and the unpredictability of what Jesus did when he was here. There are times where he would walk into a city like Nazareth and walk away doing no mighty work. Yet here he is in a Gentile city bantering with a Canaanite woman. There are times where when he would confront the religious experts, Jesus would be downright nasty and he'd call them names, right? You brood of vipers, you unwashed tombs, filthy. And then there are times where he would sit with Nicodemus, a member of the high council late at night, and the most famous verse in your entire Bible gets shared with a Pharisee. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does anybody besides me have a hard time figuring Jesus out? 
The woman who washes his feet with her hair is doing it in the home of a Pharisee where Jesus is happy to eat dinner. But Jesus is also happy to eat dinner with Zacchaeus to the point that he even invites himself over. See, this is our God. Our God is a God who is not obligated to either eat with Pharisees or not eat with Pharisees, who is not obligated to heal, not obligated to speak or to teach, And this is important in our story today. Ambrose, one of the fathers of the church, speaking on this very passage, said this, if God answered every request equally or the same, he might appear to us to be acting from necessity rather than free will. We must remember, and this is an important takeaway from this, because I'm guessing that if I ask for a show of hands, everybody in this room could raise their hand and say, I have a need. Everybody in this room could say, there's something I'm asking God for. Everybody here. I'm not going to play to that because it's such an easy, let's get some exercise going this morning. I know all of us are there. And here's the reality. Every one of us could also raise our hands to say, God has frustrated us sometimes. God has annoyed us sometimes. He's exasperated us because we can't figure out how come he did something good last time when we asked, but this time he's not doing anything. And I think the Syrophoenician woman teaches us that God is a free agent who acts out of free will. And he wants to make sure we know he's not obligated, he's not needy, he's not compelled, he's God. And whether he answers or doesn't answer, it's always good because it's always God. This is where we become men and women of strong faith. Because faith is what sustains us in the absence of physical evidence. Faith is what carries us in the in-between. And I think when we think of this chapter, we see what God is doing through the entirety of these stories. We find ourselves looking at Jesus revealing goodness to all people. His goodness is not reserved to one small group of people. It's coming for all people. I think it's beautiful that this daughter of Jezebel, if you will, she eats in this story. She eats crumbs in this story. The disciples were eating with dirty hands and the Pharisees were all upset. We get to the end of this story and a Syrophoenician woman with an unclean person is eating the crumbs of the kingdom and her daughter is made whole. And what we know is that she will be a daughter of Abraham. She will be a daughter of Abraham because of Jesus and because of what he came to do. Let's bow our heads together.